Thanks, John and Trudy. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2 is right at the start of your Bible. And we're talking about heaven. We were spending a few weeks considering the topic of heaven, the place that we will live forever. We're doing this for a number of reasons. One is because it's always appropriate for us to set our minds on things above. We want to consider God's truth as it relates to the um, eternal things, the things that God wants us to be thinking about in this life as we go through some of the drudgery of our life, we need to keep in mind that there is more than just what we meet day to day coming at us. There is an eternity that's coming. We look forward to that hope. It is the hope of the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with Him He brings glory and He ushers us into His kingdom, and eventually we will experience the joys of a new heaven and new earth. This should thrill our hearts. It should be our anticipation and our hope. And we want to help foster some joy in that topic by looking at some texts that have the air of heaven about them. I want to ask you a question to begin, though. And think for a moment, just kind of imagine if you would, and you answer this question. If you could design heaven, what would you design it to be like? If you had that opportunity, the artistic license, the engineering capacity to design heaven, what would it be like? What would you make it to be? What would you want there? What would you not want there? Who would you want there? What would you do there? Would it even be a there? What would your heaven be like? How would you configure it? Your mind certainly could churn on that question for quite a while. I love teaching kids about heaven because it just stokes their imagination. They love topics about heaven. They love thinking about what it would be like. Would you get to fly? Would you get to swim like a dolphin? What would it be like? Kids can have imagination in it. You can use that too. It's all right. What would it be like? What would you design it to be like? But at the same time, I have to add a caution. My question is almost completely irrelevant because nobody besides me is really asking you. You are not God, and so you do not get to decide what heaven will be like. Sorry to let you down. (laughs) Built up your hopes, and I just like to dash them. You do, not get to get, you do not get to use your paintbrush to paint heaven. You don't get to set the parameters. You don't have that authority. But I want to suggest to you that you do not need to worry about not being the one who gets to design heaven. Because the one who designs heaven is good and wise, and imaginative, and powerful. And he did not design you and heaven to be incompatible. Perhaps a simple example to help illustrate this. Have you ever had the experience where you said, or maybe somebody said of you that, That thing was just made directly for you. I remember the first time I bought a suit. I was with my mom. And we were going to different stores and just having a hard time. I didn't really have money to get anything kind of fancy or could be altered. I just needed to get something that fit me. And we were having a hard time finding it because my arms are freakishly long. And so it was hard to get something that would work. And we finally get to a store and I get... I try on the suit, and I come out of the changing room, and some lady I didn't even know said, it's like that suit was made just for you. She was not the sales lady. 
Have you ever had an experience like that where there's just something that just, it was like it was just built just for you, tailored directly for you? I want to suggest to you that that's what heaven will feel like for you. That the designer of heaven is so keen in his abilities that he will make a home for you that will be just right. It will be exactly what it ought to be. This means that God has not made heaven and humanity to be incompatible. It means that God's heaven is perfectly suited to his design of redeemed humanity. It means that the new heavens and the new earth will match the new creation in Christ Jesus. If you have hands in heaven, heaven will be tailored for your hands. If you have feet in heaven, heaven will be tailored for your feet. If you have a mind in heaven, heaven will be tailored for your mind and your mind for heaven. If you have eyes in heaven, your eyes will be tailored for heaven and heaven for your eyes. They will work together. God has not given us dull senses incapable of great delights. He's given us great capacities for delight. The problem is, in one sense, that they're so powerful that we use them in a corrupted sense for ungodly things. We take and abuse them. But God has not given us dull senses Sometimes we take a fatalistic attitude towards God. We think that he's, in a sense, just out to get us. That his definition of good is so different than our definition of good, and sometimes it very much is. But his definition of good, we sometimes think, is almost sadistic. Like, here's a big old trial. Enjoy it. And we think God has no idea what delights our heart. As a matter of fact, God designed our hearts and he knows what ought to delight it. We can have the skewed view of God that creates the skepticism about God and his definition of good, but God is good, and he alone is good, and so he knows what is good. Psalm 1611 declares, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 36, 7 through 9. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. God understands what delight is. And he is not about withholding it from us. Jesus says in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. God declares in Jeremiah 32, His covenant with his redeemed people, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. God's design is not for eternal drudgery and dreariness. It is not for you to be bored, dull, senseless. He has designed an eternity that will be full of delights and joys that our hearts will swell with praise to him for. But we live in a tension right now with the creation that we live in. We get a little taste of this, of how good God is in in the creation that we live in. Just this weekend, uh, some men from the church and I drove up to a men's conference a few hours away. And as we were driving, it must have been said about a dozen times, what a beautiful drive. We're driving up into the Adirondacks. The, most of the leaves are off the trees, but it's just a beautiful day as the sun was shining. It was Friday. Briskness in the air. We're driving along a river, occasionally by lakes, and it was just this gorgeous scenery. 
the same river that we drove by can flood. The same sky that was shining blue can produce hail. The glassy lakes can turn stormy. And the same people that we're riding into, into the conference in the car with can turn bitter and angry and do us great harm. And so we taste in this world these great delights. And at the same time, it's riddled with sin. We want this world, and we don't want this world. We taste of its beauty, and we taste of its horrors. The promise that God holds out to us is a new heavens and a new earth. Not the complete undoing of all of the good that we enjoy in this world, but the stripping away of all of the bad and the recreating of all of the good so that the hearts that we have are redeemed in Christ can taste of the goodness of what God has done in the new creation. Randy Alcorn's helpful book on heaven, he writes this, Understanding and anticipating the physical nature of the new earth corrects a multitude of errors. It frees us to love the world that God has made without guilt while saying no to the world corrupted by our sin. It reminds us that God himself gave gave us the earth, gave us a love for the earth, and will delight to give us the new earth. Think for a moment what this will mean for Adam and Eve. When the new earth comes down from heaven, the rest of us will be going home, but Adam and Eve will be coming home. Only they will have lived on three earths, one unfallen, one fallen, and one redeemed. Only they will have experienced, at at least to a degree, the treasure of an original, magnificent earth that was lost and is now regained. When we open our eyes for the first time on the new earth, will it be unfamiliar, or will we recognize it as home? I want to look at Genesis chapter 2 with you for a few moments the narrative about the Garden of Eden because it presents to us something that we have never lived in. It presents to us an unfallen earth, an earth untainted by sin. Eden doesn't tell us everything about heaven. The new heavens and the new earth will be greater than Eden, but it does teach us some things. And the main thing I want you to walk away from our time in Genesis 2 is contemplating that Genesis 2 tells us that God, who made the heavens and the earth, has good plans, and that we are designed for the earth, and the earth designed for us. Is heaven our home, or is earth our home? I think Eden would suggest both. Let's look at Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good, Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge 
of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've given us the revelation of your word. We pray that you would help us, as we were singing just a few moments ago, to open our eyes and our hearts. Open them that we might see the truth. We might know more of you and your good plans, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Just a little background on the book of Genesis. Genesis is a book of beginnings. It tells us where the world came from, where man came from, where animals and plant life came from, where pretty much everything came from except for God. It leaves that question unanswered because he's always been. But I want to build the case here at the book, beginning of the book of Genesis that the Garden of Eden, among other things, shows that when God made Eden, he made it for man to bless man. Genesis 1 recounts the creation of the heavens and the earth. It goes through the six days of the creation of the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day, as you know, God rested. The refrain throughout that is, God saw what he had made, and it was good. God made a good world. He made it for its purpose. He accomplished that purpose when he made each thing. You come to chapter 2 and it slows down and it focuses on day 6 when God made man and woman. Genesis 1.31 tells us that God saw everything that he had made. This was after he had made man and woman and behold it was very good. And chapter 2 kind of takes that refrain and slows it down and shows what God did on that final day of creation as he made man and woman. And this is to help us understand that the capstone of God's creation is the creation of mankind, of Adam and Eve, of male and female. That's why he declares that final day as everything being very good because he created everything and it was good. He created the seas, he created the land, he created the creatures, he created the trees, he created the sun and the stars, he created the sky. And that was all good. But it was all being prepared for something is being prepared for man to come on the earth and to have dominion over that which God had made. That's what God says in chapter 1, verse 28. He says to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God's intention in creating all of this world was to put man in his place, in a sense, to have dominion over what God just created. Chapter 2 helps us understand a bit more of God's blessing in this. Chapter 2, verse 4, begins with, These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. If you study the book of Genesis at all, you might recognize that phrase. It's a repetitive phrase throughout the book of Genesis. These are the generations. You'll see that a number of times. And it breaks down the book of Genesis for us. It helps us kind of know the chapter divisions a little bit more than the numbers in our English Bibles. It shows how the author of Genesis was laying things out. These are the generations of begins a new section in the book of Genesis. They're a bit like those Russian nesting dolls is the point of this. These are the generations of takes off the top of what just came and shows there's something else nested inside of it. And then you open that one up, these are the generations of, and you see what was inside of that. And it just keeps on unfolding through the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. It basically says, here's what becomes of the heavens and the earth. Here's what became of God's creation. And if you read through this section, what becomes of God's creation is man and woman are made. They're placed in the Garden of Eden. They fall into temptation. They sin. The earth is cursed. They are cursed. Cain and Abel come. Chapter 5, death comes. And then chapter 5 
verse 1 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Well, what comes from Adam? Now it comes death. As you keep going, you'll see there's another one in chapter 10, verse 1. You've gone through the flood. You've gone through all of the chaos of the destruction of what God had made. And then you come to chapter 10, verse 1, and it says, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. So what come from Noah are his sons? And then chapter 11, verse 27, now these are the generations of Terah. What came from Terah is Abram, and it follows the path of Abram. I say all that just to show you that as we come back to chapter 2, verse 4, the point is, what is to come from the creation of the heavens and the earth? Of all that God does in chapter 1, all of the creation of everything, what's the focus of that? What really comes from that is the creation of man and woman. These are the generations of the earth and the heavens. What's the focus? What's the emphasis? It's mankind. I would in no way advocate that we are to live a man-centered way of thinking about our lives. The center of everything is God. He gets the glory. He gets the adoration. He gets the praise because he's the one from whom all blessings flow. But we are not to misunderstand God's plan for things. God's plan in the creation of the world was to set man in dominion over the world that he has made. And so man has a substantial place in God's plan. The Bible is very, very God-centered. But there is rarely a page in the book of the Bible that you will not also find it speaking about man. And so you could say the Bible is God-centered, particularly as it relates between God's relationship with man. God is a God who is bent on fulfilling his purposes, and it seems to indicate, at least in chapter 2, that God's plan is on blessing creation, particularly through man. Let's work through this text a little bit, and we can first consider that the earth was not always the way that we know it. The earth was not always the way that we know it now. I had a conversation a number of years ago with a coworker who was an agnostic, and he was talking about how he looks at the world and all of the death in the world, and he was saying, I just can't believe that there is a God who would create a world so full of death. And I asked him the question, what if that's not the way it always was? And he stopped. He didn't have an answer to that. He pretty much indicated he'd have to consider that, and maybe that would shift his thoughts about the very world that he lives in. This chapter makes a huge difference in our view of this world that we live in. It's not always been this way. It's not always been so full of death and corruption, disease, terror, frights, aches, pains, quarreling. It's not always been this way. Our text begins with a setting up statement in verse 5 to let us know and orient us. It says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up. It's basically indicating that there is a difference between what we're going to find out in chapter 2 and what happens in chapter 3. This is a very uh, much a literary device to point our attention to what happens in chapter 3. Look over at chapter 3, verse 17. This is after the fall of man. To Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust." And to dust you shall return. So Genesis 2 verse 5 orients us and basically tells us this is a time 
before the fall has happened. This is before it's hard to produce food for man. This is before the ground has been cursed and Adam will have to deal with thorns and thistles and have to, by the sweat of his brow, raise up crops for himself. So it's during that time. It's before the fall has happened. And it says also during this time, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land, was watering the whole face of the ground. God has set this stage. Creation has happened by and large, but it's not quite done yet. There's something else that needs to happen. There is no man yet to work the ground. And so this sets the stage for a contrast with the world before the fall and the world after the fall. There's, you can go and study. There's lots of interesting things to think about there with the mist going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground, and you can look at that on your own. But for now, I want you to focus on the fact that there was something that was, there was a world made before the fall. And its capstone of the creation was man. God formed the man for the earth. In verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. God formed the man. This is a pottery language or a potter's language. In Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 2 through 6, it says, Arise and go down to the potter's house. It's the same word. And there I will let you hear my words. So I went down to the potter's house, and there he was working at his wheel. And the vessel he was making of clay was spoiled in the potter's hand, and he reworked it into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to do. God is a potter, and we are the clay, and there's It's almost an exact literary representation of that. God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He took man from dust and he formed him. We are made by the hands of God intentionally. And the point is that God formed man with a design. He formed him exactly as he wanted him to be. It was not a random accident. This is one of the great faults of the theory of evolution is that suggests that we are a mere product of time and chance. That's an abominable teaching because it suggests that all that we are just happened to be. And it gives no credit to the maker who made us with such intricacy as we have been made. You've been designed a particular way. You've been designed to have feet and hands and ears and eyes a brain and a stomach and etc. And it goes on and on. All the things that God has made for you came from his hand, not just the collaboration of time and chance. God formed man. He designed man particularly. As a potter takes a lump of clay in his hands and has in his mind's eye what he wants to make and turns that lump of clay until he has it be the exact vessel that he wants it to be. And with a precision and skill that no human potter can match, God formed Adam. I think it's fair to say God made Adam exactly as he wanted him to be. Not one cell out of place, not one hair extra or less, made him exactly as he wanted him to be. Which raises the question, Why were we made this way? We didn't choose it. We didn't choose hands and ears and eyes and noses. You had nothing to do with that. Adam had nothing to do with that. He had no say in the design process. Why did God make him that way? Occasionally I'll stumble across some contraption and you have no idea where it came from. You could have gears or levers. You could have nuts and bolts. And you look at this thing and just think, yeah, I have no idea what this thing does. But I know it does something. It's not just been randomly put together. It has a particular purpose. There's something 
for it to do. We're so used to ourselves that we don't think, why five fingers? Why fingernails? Why eyelashes? Why toes? Toes are really weird. Why teeth arranged this way? Eyes with such intricacy. Of all of the variables of how man could have been put together, why this way and no other way? It's an amazing design. Because we use it every day, we have a sense of why this way. But at the very start, if for some reason you could just stumble across Adam as he's just been made, why this way? Instead of the billions of other ways it could have been. It may not need to be stated because it's such an obvious answer. But God made us this way so that we could interact with the creation that he made. If you didn't have five fingers, ten fingers, (laughs) if you didn't have ten fingers, life would be different. Now, I know people lose fingers and they can still get by, which is an amazing testimony of the ingenuity of God's design. But you keep on running down the different attributes God has made you with, you'd be significantly limited in this world. You are perfectly designed to interact with the world that God had made. It also may not to be stated because it's so obvious, but God made man different from the rest of creation. Even though God formed the rest of the creatures, it tells us that he formed them even from the ground as well. God made man different. There are no other civilizations, cities, literature, art, cultures like humanity produces. We cook our food, with the rare exception of eating sushi. We have marriage and loving relationships, friendships. Man is the pinnacle of God's creation, unique among all the other creatures that God has made. The psalmist of Psalm 8 marvels at this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and all those, so the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist is marveling at God's consideration of mankind. He knows the greatness of God's power is exhibited in the stars in the sky. And he considers God's care for man and that God designed man to have dominion over the world. He made man that way intentionally. God formed him as a potter forms clay. And he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It's a very special moment because in this moment, Adam becomes a living creature. He's just a lump of clay, and now he becomes a living creature. And he becomes a living creature because God particularly gave him life. The God who has eternal life dwelling in him, in whom is life, gave Adam life. And now Adam's alive. Lest we get too caught up on ourselves... Chapter 2 lets us know that God formed us from dust. We're made of dust. As Martin Luther puts it, we're just a lump of earth. Despite our amazing faculties and the fact that we are the pinnacle of creation, we have to remember we're just dust. Had God not formed us and given us life, 
we would be that which the animals walk upon. We are just dust. And so the favor that God has shown humanity in creating Adam with all of his skills, abilities, and capacities is a gift that is undeserved because we had nothing to do with it. And all the blessings that Adam would know in the Garden of Eden would be amplified by the fact that just a few moments ago, he didn't even exist. If for some reason we could plan our own existence, we certainly couldn't do it with the precision, care, and blessing that God has bestowed on us. But God formed man. And then God puts man in a home. The home is the Garden of Eden. This is man's first home. It says in chapter 2, verse 8, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man who he had formed. It says it again that God put the man in the garden in chapter 2, verse 15. It says that God planted this garden. Just as God formed the man, God planted the garden. He's the one who made both of them. God formed the man. God planted the garden. And this is really good news for us. Occasionally, you get too many people working on the same thing at the same time, and it doesn't go well. Too many cooks in the kitchen kind of thing. There was a situation a few years ago in 1999 when NASA lost a $125 million Mars Climate Orbiter spacecraft. They had sent it on a journey to Mars, and as it went to go enter the atmosphere of Mars, they lost it. And this was because they had one group that was trying to send the orbiter to Mars, and another group that had designed the orbiter, and one group decided to use a metric system, and the other group decided to use the English system. And those don't communicate well together if you don't convert them. And they didn't convert them. And so you had these two groups trying to do the same thing. And it ended up in a total failure and loss of this multi-million dollar Mars orbiter. We don't have multiple designers. We have one designer. We have the one who designed man. And we have the one who designs man's home, and they are the same God. And this indicates to me that the home that God made for man and the man that God made are perfectly suited for each other because they share the same designer. You don't have different designers, you have the same one. So that means that the one who made the caretaker of the garden also formed the garden. Which one has priority? The garden or the gardener? I think it's clear as you read through Genesis that God gives the priority to man. God puts man on the top to rule over God's creation. But we have such a way of getting things backwards. For example, God created the Sabbath, the seventh day, a day of rest. And he instructed Israel to keep that day as a day set apart, holy unto the Lord, a day of rest where they were to do no work. Man or beast, slave or free, weren't supposed to work that day. But by the time that Jesus came around, people had got it so backwards that the Sabbath was actually a burden to them rather than a gift to them. So much so that Jesus had to correct their thinking and say that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a gift, and man took it and manipulated it to become a burden. My point here is that God created the garden, the home for Adam, 
I think to be a gift, not to be a burden. What does that have to do with us? Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 21, says that the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. One commentator notes about this passage that it means that creation is waiting with the head raised and the eye fixed on the point of the horizon from which the expected object is to come. It depicts somebody standing on tiptoe or stretching the neck, craning forward in order to be able to see. And what the creation is looking for is the revelation of God's children, that is, the disclosure of their identity on the one hand and their investiture with glory on the other. This will be the signal for the renewal of the whole creation. We live in a fallen world. Creation groans and it waits for something. And what it waits for is man's redemption, man's glorification in Christ Jesus. And when that happens, creation too will be set free from the bondage of decay and will be renewed to be glorious. And so you have a new creation in the earth and you have a new creation in the humanity that inhabits the earth and they go together. They are compatible. This is the picture that we get at the very start of Genesis when God creates man and God creates man's home and they're perfectly compatible together. In Genesis 2 verse 9, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The Garden of Eden is the place that's known to be the place of paradise. It's a place of delight. The word Eden was originally translated in the Latin as paradise. Even in the Old Testament, it's considered to be a place of blessing and lavish flourishing. In Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 35, it says, they will say this land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. Isaiah 51.3 says, The Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden, her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. The Old Testament's association with the Garden of Eden is a place of lavish blessing, of flourishing, of delight, of thanksgiving, of joy. the presence of delight, and it's exemplified by the fact that God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The great lie of Satan in the garden was that God was withholding something from Adam and Eve, that God was holding back from them. But in reality, God made the Garden of Eden to be a place of delight where every tree sprung up that was pleasant to the sight and good for food. God was not stingy. He was lavish in his blessing. He did not hold back. He prepared this beautiful place for man to inhabit, for man to work, for man to keep, for man to eat from, with the exception of the one tree. The garden was made by God for man. Again, I want to make sure you see this. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And then again, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. God made man. God made the garden. They go together. They're compatible. I want to ask just another question to kind of wrap this together and hopefully have some 
some thoughts that you can walk away with here. Why is Eden a place that you would want to be? Why is Eden a place that you would want to be? Consider this for a moment. Adam had never existed before that day. And then all of a sudden, poof, there he is. He hadn't thought, felt, dreamed, slept, tasted, or heard. He had no capacity for every, anything because he was nothing. He didn't exist. And then all of a sudden, with no premeditation of his own, he exists. He has eyes, arms, feet, a mouth, a stomach, and he is placed in a place where he can enjoy using all of those things. He was not placed in a sensory deprivation chamber. Have you seen those things? There's these capsules that you can go into. They're filled with salt water that is heated to the exact temperature of your body, and they close the lid, and no light can come in, and no sound can come in, and it's just you floating in a body of water that feels exactly the same as your body, and it tries to deprive you of all sensation of everything. It's supposed to be some sort of relaxation technique. You can go to a spa and do that. That's not the world that Adam was dropped in. He was made with all five senses, a mind to soak in the creation of God, and then he was placed in a place where God created a world where he could enjoy all of the things that God had made. He was not placed in a sensory deprivation chamber. He was placed in an environment where he could use all of his senses. His eyes would see the delightful trees God had made. His tongue would taste the delightful taste God had created. His nose would smell the delightful fragrances of the flowers. His ears would hear the delightful sound of the wind. His body would feel the delightful breeze of the cool air. But why would he like the taste, the feel, the fragrance, the sound, the colors? Why would he look at the vibrant colors and enjoy them, the pineapples, and think that they taste good? Why would he be able to look at the blue sky and marvel? And I hope by this time the answer is obvious. Because God made him and God made blue. God made him and God made pineapples. God made him and God made trees. God made him and God made everything else. And he fit them together. Did it have to be this way? Might not green look disgusting to him? Might not pineapple taste abhorrent? I don't know if pineapple was in the Garden of Eden. I hope you just know that's an example. You might not like pineapple. If you don't like pineapple, choose your fruit that you like, okay? Might the trees look ugly? Might the wind feel awful? Might the rustling leaves sound like nails on a chalkboard? Why is there delight at all? Because of God. Because God is a blessing God. Read through Genesis and you will see God's intention to bless the people he has made has not stopped. Chapter 12, verse 3, God's intention is to bless all the families of the earth. I don't want to turn into some sensual people that all we're doing is trying to fulfill our senses. The point I want to make is the reason that you can have any enjoyment in anything at all is because God created the capacity for you to have that and God created a world that you can live in where you can enjoy it. I want that to stimulate your thoughts about heaven. Heaven will not be dull, dreary, boring. You have a God who made you and a God who is making heaven. 
Just one more thought. Lest we think that heaven is, again, just all about the satisfying of our human appetites. Look for a moment at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 45, this is the chapter Paul writes about the resurrection. Thus, it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, he's referring to Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I have no doubt that heaven will delight all of our senses. We will have tastes of things that will blow our minds. But that's not all. That's like following the man of dust. If you are in Christ Jesus, and you know his salvation, then you know that he has made you a new creation. And he has given you capacities not just to enjoy the physical world that God has made, but he has given you capacities to enjoy all of the spiritual blessings that he intends to pour out into our lives. And so the new heavens and the new earth will not just be a place where you eat all of the good fruit that you want. It will also be the place where you praise the lamb who was slain because God has given you a heart to worship the lamb who was slain. We have much to look forward to. God created you, and God is creating the new heavens and the new earth. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to know what a blessing God you are. Help us, Lord, to praise you, even now for the the tastes of goodness that we have every day, the, the many blessings that you pour into our life. But Father, I pray also we wouldn't miss the spiritual blessings you've poured into our hearts, the forgiveness of sins, the redemption of our lives, fellowship with Christ, a knowledge of you, a hope of heaven. Thank you, Father, for your many gifts to us. You are good. May your name be praised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.